This podcast is brought to you by NewFarmSupply.com. Go to NewFarmSupply.com and save 20% on anything you purchase with code word SAMPLE. Also, if you go and you click below in the show notes, you'll see that you actually can save $100 on the Profitable Urban Farming course at ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. Thank you guys so much and enjoy the show. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I found it. I want you to meet the baddest motherfucker in town. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. I am pleased to have this guest on today. Um, I recently saw him in one of Curtis's, Curtis Stone's Farmer to Farmer podcasts, and then I uh, heard him and Diego talk about his farm quite a bit um, on the Urban Farmer podcast and thought I should get to know this guy and pick his brain. He is um, one of the owners and operators of Second Spring Market Garden out of Asheville, North Carolina, Mr. Matt Coffe. Did I say it right? Or did I, I feel like I yeah. pronounced the, the yeah, F. That, that's, that's, that's great. It's like, <laughs> it's like a foreign language or something sometimes when people try to say it's kind of, it's kind of silly. But yeah, no, you, you got it. That was great. All right, cool. Well, check one for my box for the start of the podcast so <laughs> Things far. are off to a good start. Things here, are off so. to a good start. I, <laughs> I practiced saying your name before recording and I nailed it. Uh well, anyways, uh, I want to have you on. I mean, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with my podcast, but it really, just really got started focusing, you know, doing small scale farming and urban farming myself and, you know, heard your story. And for listeners who aren't aware, um, you guys made, I mean, you guys made like a hundred grand on an acre and it was predominantly during the winter time. Is that correct? Or is that a little Yeah, bit- so, uh, that, that's pretty close. So we, um, uh, this will be, like the the season that we're in now, so with it being May, this is our second year. So last year was our first year doing it full time, um, and uh, we run a, a four season farm. Uh, so we made uh, a, over a hundred thousand uh, in sales our first year as a farm, uh, running as a four season farm, and and that's on one acre. So that's awesome. Now, just kind of going back, because you said this is your first year full time. So how did how did you guys, well, how many of there are you that are part of Second Spring Market Garden and how did you yeah. guys get started? So, so it's, uh, it's me, like I'm the, I'm the owner of the farm. Um, my, uh, my, my ex partner and I started the farm together and now it's just me with some folks working with me. Um, and, uh, so it's, you know, it's a little bit like what, what Jean Martin Fortier does in terms of, uh, <clears throat> the labor force. Uh, so, you know, he says like four people, four skilled people working full time is, is a pretty good labor force for an acre to an acre and a half. And I think that's about right. Um, so this is really like a four person operation. Um, uh, and, uh, do you want me to do like the, 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 how we got started story? Is that, yeah, yeah. Story sell, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so, um, so yeah, when I say last year, uh, 2015 was my first year doing this full time. Um, I uh, I had never actually worked on a farm or even been to a farm um, before we started doing this. So, which is kind of, I don't know if that's like encouraging for people or if it just makes me sound crazy or maybe both. But um, but when uh, 
So, so the way that this started, um, you know, my, my college education was in something totally unrelated. And uh, I ended up in China uh, in graduate school um, for, for, again, something totally unrelated to, to agriculture. And um, I had just been like a home gardener for uh, most of my adult life, um, growing a lot of vegetables and stuff. But, you know, like raised beds, like a few hundred square feet, like just, just for me. Uh, no production or anything like that. And, um, I, uh, when I was in China, I started getting more and more interested in the food system because living in a big city. And there are a lot of, a lot of problems with the food system there. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you really stripped away all the regulation from like big ag in the States and sort of let it run wild for a while, that that's a little bit what the food system looks like, I think, in China in terms of industrial agriculture um, to feed the the big population there. So, um, so when I got back to the states, I was really I had become kind of like um, polarized uh, in terms of of the problems that that our food system is presenting for us um, as a country now. And uh, I, I started to go, you know, continue with grad school here. I thought that maybe I wanted to teach and do some writing. Um, and uh, the more I thought about it, the more I felt like I really wanted to do something. Like I wanted to actually, you know, grow food or or take some sort of like more active role um, in my community here in uh, in Asheville in Western North Carolina. Uh, but I didn't really know what that would look like or or how I could do that. And I went to um, so this this was in 2014. I went to the uh, Mother Earth News Fair. If you're familiar with that, yeah. Um, and uh, and Jean Martin Fortier was. Uh, was uh, speaking there and he had just published his book in English. Like that was when it first came out. Uh, and, uh, you know, he spoke and like there was a little crowd or whatever. And I went and talked to him for a minute afterwards and bought his book and read it. And I was like, wow, like, look what this guy's doing. This is amazing. And I had read Elliot Coleman's books like years ago when I started gardening. And I always thought it was really interesting that there was this guy up in Maine doing this, this stuff with a lot of hand tools and whatever, but it, but it always seemed like nobody else was actually doing that. So, you know, back when I was a home gardener, I was like, well, it's cool that this guy's doing this up in Maine, but like maybe he's making his money selling books or something. Like maybe this isn't really actually doable. And then I read JM's book and I was like, oh no, you can actually do this apparently. So, <laughs> so I started out, started out doing it part time, by which I mean like a 3,000 square foot backyard garden in 2014. Uh, and I spent a lot of time just looking at, uh, what the market was lacking in my area because we're, you know, it's, it's a very, Asheville is like a pretty saturated market. I mean, people are very motivated to buy local food here and, and, and that's great, but there are also a lot of small farms here. Like, um, you know, when you consider that you've got like 1% of the population or something shopping at farmer's markets, like it, it's there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of farms here already. <laughs> so, um, so 2014, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out like what, what I needed to, uh, like what kind of niche I could fill or niches, I guess, plural, I could fill here. Um, and then, uh, 2015 was me, uh, trying to do that full time. So that's pretty awesome, man. So, I mean, we kind of, it sounds like we, we started in like a similar thing. I'm mainly just doing my backyard now. Had you, were you mainly just using like uh, JM's methods that first year, and were you at the farmers market in 2014? Yeah, so so first year part time, 
I read JM's book cover to cover a couple times and uh, was just like, all right, I'll just do what this guy's doing. Except I didn't have uh, a lot of the tools that he had. So I was doing a lot of stupid stuff, like doing things by hand that I probably should have just been doing with some sort of tool, like like a seating. For ex- and but but it's funny because he says that like when he and and his wife first started out, they were seating everything by hand, you know. Yeah. Um, and and then eventually they bought a seater and they were like, oh wow, there's this thing that can do this for you. <laughs> but um, but uh, but yeah. So I so I was basically using his methods, but without all the tools that that uh, I have now. Um, and I went to the farmer's market <clears throat> mostly uh, to see if my, uh, if my hunch, hunches were right about you know the, the gaps in the marketplace and things that made sense for me to grow and, and whatever. Um, and what were, those, what were those gaps? Like what, what were your hunches? Like did you go to the farmer's markets um, and, and see, okay, people aren't growing this. I think I can yeah, sell yeah. this here. Yeah, so so in Asheville, which again is like a very saturated market, um, lots and lots of vegetable farms, and and so, I mean, saturated in general, regardless of what you want to produce in terms of of food, but definitely lots of vegetable farms, um, and uh, yeah, so so there are a couple things. One is was that nobody was doing like a really high quality, really nice salad mix, uh, like that was available all the time. Um, so there are a lot of people doing salad mix where, you know, it's like sitting out with the bag open and it's like kind of damp and like you buy it and it goes bad in two days and that kind of stuff. So, so the quality wasn't really there on that. And so I was like, okay, like, you know, that's something that I like to eat and I observe a lot of people like to eat that. So I think I can like kind of step up, um, the, the quality on, on that and have it available all the time and brand it. Uh, brand branding something like that is pretty easy to do. I think you know, like Absolutely. it's easy to stick a label on a bag, and then people know where they got it from, and they buy it from you again the next week. And um, so there was that. And the other thing was winter production. And I had, um, you know, I had read Elliot Coleman's uh, Winter Harvest Handbook, and uh, used to just you know set up a couple low tunnels in my yard when I was a home gardener and, and grow stuff in the winter here and we're zone we're zone six. So like we get, you know, sub zero temperatures in the winter, mm-hmm. but, uh, but we don't get huge snow loads and stuff. So you can do some pretty interesting stuff with PVC here in the winter without worrying about it collapsing all the time in snowstorms. Um, so I had done that stuff at home and I was like, you know, if you scaled this up and at the time I didn't really know what this was going to look like, but I was just thinking, well, if you scaled this up, there's got to be like a low cost way to do this kind of like unheated, low tech growing in the winter, uh, but without, you know, big permanent structures like high tunnels and stuff. So, uh, so that was the other thing I wanted to do was was bring a ton of stuff to market in the winter, and uh, and that eventually evolved into offering a fifty two week CSA. So that's pretty awesome. Now, when you first started the farmers market in Asheville, like I, um, like I'm in Columbus, so we have a, we have a couple farmers markets that are absolutely huge, and I and yeah. I haven't really wanted to participate in those yet, um, just because there are so many farmers markets and it's a, a pretty decent sized city. Now, did you go? To the the major farmer market farmers market first, or is was there more around Asheville that you could get into? Uh, so there there's 
Asheville is like, you know, a hundred thousand people. Okay. Um, and, uh, but, but is very like local food focused. Yeah. Um, it's a hit so, place. Yeah. So there, so there are a lot of, uh, like if you, if you include like within maybe a 45 minute radius of the city, like with all the little towns surrounding it and stuff, I think I counted 14 farmers markets, uh, at, at last count. Um, so like pretty much every day of the week, there's a farmer's market somewhere. <laughs> um, but most of them are very small and I don't really see people doing a lot of business at them. So, so there's a couple like big Saturday markets. Uh, and so I started out at one of those. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, again, like there was a lot of finagling to try to get into that market in the first place but uh, like that wasn't that was not easy to do at all and i actually remember being very self-conscious um at first because i was you know i was i, I was i was growing the stuff in my backyard in like a 3000 square foot plot with like a mantis tiller and like <laughs> seeding salad mix by hand with my fingers and stuff and going to this market and being like, wow, like there's, there are all these other farms and they have all this stuff. And like, I don't have as much stuff as them and what, you know, and now we have, we have more produce and more variety than anybody at market and we have it all the time. So, um, but when I, but when I first started, I was very self-conscious of not, you know, not <laughs> of, of, of kind of looking like, like, you know, kind of sad next to the, next to the quote unquote real farm with the, you know, yeah, with all the produce next door. So, but you had to have done well because what made you say, "Okay, it's time to scale up"? Uh, well, so that's funny too because scaling up, you know, was like up to an acre. So, it's that's, like, I mean, that's not, a lot from a backyard, though. Yeah, it's like to you know, fifteen times bigger or something. Um, yeah, so well, you know, just we were selling the stuff that we were growing very quick. Like I was selling out every week at market. So I was like, okay, you know, there's a market for this. And, and I also just kind of reached a point where, where I said, you know, this is what I want to do for a job. So like, what am I doing? Wasting my time waiting tables or something when I could be doing this. So, so, um, so you knew what you wanted to do. So what was your, what was your strategy to, to get the infrastructure in place and everything else like that? Uh, so I was, uh, I was actually in graduate school and doing this part time and looking into ways to finance it. And, uh, I just running Google searches, I, I ended up finding the, the new, um, micro loan program, which are you familiar with that? Is that, um, I the, think we have F USDA FSA. I'm sure, I am not familiar with it. There's a similar yeah. food microloan program here. I forget what it's called, but like it's you basically okay. you raise half of the money yourself and then they pay you the full loan back and you can pay the people back who gave you the money to raise it. That's what we have here. Okay. Okay, so so this is when I do like my plug for the National Young Farmers Coalition, but um uh so the National Young Farmers Coalition really kind of like spearheaded this uh this program with with the USDA Farm Service Agency uh under the under the Obama administration and managed to get this new program passed. So so right now um uh you can as as a beginning farmer um you can have access to funds that like a few years ago weren't available um for beginning farmers. So uh for a long time the Farm Service Agency uh under the USDA has administered these uh, direct farm ownership loans, 
which are like big $300,000 low interest loans, but they're only available to people with several years of uh, farm experience. Mm -hmm. So you can use them to like buy acreage and put in infrastructure and stuff. But if you're a brand new farmer with like, you know, maybe a year's experience trying to run a part-time farm or maybe you've apprenticed somewhere for a year or two, you couldn't access one of those loans. So the Young Farmers Coalition was like, hey, there's this big gap because um, there are all these little little guys like me um, that need to get started and they don't need like a $300,000 loan because they're not buying land. They just need some infrastructure and some tools. Um, so they uh, worked with the USDA to set up this microloan program, um, which is a up to a $50,000 loan um, at a very, very low interest rate. Uh, very good repayment terms. It's a great loan. Um, and I use that uh, to get started with the farm. So with that, you know, because like if you, I, I, I'm, I assume you've read James' book and, and whatever. So, JM meaning Jean Martin. Um, uh, so, you know, he talks about uh, getting started with like 40 grand um, and, uh, you know, not, not including any sort of land purchase, obviously, but just, you know, your tools and infrastructure and stuff. So, so that was basically what I did was I got this loan and I was like, okay, I'm going to buy like a new BCS 853 and I'm going to buy an irrigation system and put up tunnels and, you know, get stuff to put together a wash station and, all this stuff um, that you need to get started. So that 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 was how that happened. So that's pretty cool. So I I've kind of taken a different approach. I because I'm always I don't know I, I'm always like leaning on the the side of of debt free and luckily like I have a good paying job. But at the same time like I it's uh, I don't know like I've been paying for a lot of stuff out of pocket. I don't have a BCS yeah. or anything, but it's. You know, but it's it's slower. Like it, it's taken me. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, for sure. It takes longer to get to hit the to hit the ground running. So when I, when I heard Curtis talking about what you were doing, and just saying, you know, man, if if I had the the tools and I could execute well, um, I mean, it's almost worth it because you can generate that cash flow. So um, yeah, yeah, we we paid back. I mean, like a. Th- third of our loan our first year last year like at the end of the year we, we paid off about a third of the loan so um so yeah no you can totally you can totally do it but you know the important thing i think is to make sure so like on the one hand like that sounds great um but at the same time it's like it's really important to make sure that you have a market for what you're doing first that you not jump in if you're not certain that you can sell the stuff so like i was already fairly certain that i could sell what I was going to do. So, um, cause you know, you could end up in a bad, in a bad position if you maybe haven't done the market research and you're just like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I read this book and so I'm definitely going to be able to sell all this produce. And it's like, well, you know, maybe it doesn't work like that. So, yeah, no, I've seen a lot of people get, uh, the USDA organic farmer loans and take out a ton of money, farm too much mm-hmm. and struggle. And then, lose most of their crops and everything like that. Like I saw it. That was one thing from, from my experience last year, the first year at the farmer's market, watching not just like watching who was doing things well, but watching what people were doing and struggling. Um, yeah. Did you kind of experience like similar things? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think every farmer's market probably looks a bit like that. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, farming's weird. It's, uh, it's, it, it's in this kind of strange space, I think, where... 
a lot of people don't. Uh, I remember talking to Jam about this. Like a lot of people don't approach it as a business in the sense that you know you would never like if you were going to start any other small business doing some sort of like whatever sort of production um, manufacturing something or whatever you're doing your, your your approach probably wouldn't be to just uh, produce you know whatever stuff you can and then just like hope that somebody buys it yeah like you're, you're you know generally it would be the other way around um, but but far, farming is strange like because it is true that everyone needs food but but it's not true that everyone knows to get the food from you, right? So, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of an obvious statement to make, I, I guess. But I don't, I don't know. I see a lot of people, you know, just growing a lot of stuff and then not selling it. Um, and and also, you know, the approach that we took uh, our first year was, you know, how much do we need to sell to be able to you know, pay our loans and, uh, pay ourselves enough to live on and like that kind of stuff. Um, and we came up with that number and then we were like, okay, so like, that's how much stuff we need to sell. And then we said, okay, is it realistic to assume that we can, that we can break that up into like this many dollars of CSA and this many dollars of farmer's market and this many dollars to restaurants. And then, and then we said, okay, that looks realistic. And then that was kind of how that went. Not, not the other way around, not like, uh, I have these needs, but I'm just gonna like hope that I can sell enough to meet them or whatever. Yeah. Um, so. And that makes perfect sense. Um, now, for for because you said you'd started the CSA. Now, when you were doing the winter, when you started doing the winter crops, had you originally had that as an intention? Like, we're gonna do a CSA, or was that just you know, it just kind of happened, or was that was that always part of the plan? Yeah. So the so my my. <clears throat> my feeling is that uh you know there are lots of lots and lots and lots of parts of the country where uh it's totally possible to grow food you know all year uh with, without using a bunch of heat or anything like that but it's really not happening because people you know people farming uh they work so hard for two thirds or three quarters or whatever of the year, uh, that they really like, you know, need to take the winter off. Um, and, and I, and I understand and respect that in, in some cases, but, um, but I really feel like if we're going to make a, a, a genuine, honest argument for the, the viability of local food, that it has to actually be available all the time, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and again, that's another maybe kind of obvious statement, but, but really like it, you have all of these people growing food and, you know, saying like, you know, buy local, buy local, but then they take like several months off <laughs> and then everybody goes and gets their produce from Whole Foods from California or whatever. Um, so, so for me, from the very beginning with setting up a CSA, like I think CSA is a great idea and I think, you know, I think it's still valid, um, uh, and, and will continue to be valid, but if it starts and stops, uh, and, and you make it into like more of an event than just a week to week reality for people, then I think it loses a lot of its, I think it loses a lot of force that way. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if, if, if you're just like, yeah, you know, CSA from like May to October, it's like, okay, that's cool. But then like, what about the other half of the year? So, so for me, it, it very, it very much from the beginning, I was like, I, I want to run a CSA where I'm, I'm growing food for people like all the time. And you, so you think you, um, you know, your retention of your members is a lot better when you don't take a break, I think is what you're trying oh, yeah. to say. Well, well, yeah, definitely. So from a business perspective, of, of course, like it helps to just be running all the time, but, but also just philosophically, I think. Yeah. When it comes Again, to if we're, like, but didn't, wasn't that one of Michael Pollan's books? The, uh, that was like a question he posed, I think like wintertime production and everything like that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like it, it's a big problem, right? Like we can't, because I think otherwise, like local food is gonna just stay in the realm of like you know, sort of like bourgeois, like you know, it sound it sounds great, but then at the end of the day, people are still buying a lot of stuff from, you know, these temperate parts of the country and whatever. So, um, so yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, have you so so your um so for your CSA because you do the farmers market now, you do a farmers market year round as well. Yeah, our farmers market moves inside uh, in the winter, but it's the same market, same day, like roughly the same time all year. So, and um, and then for percentage in sales, like what percentages of your guys' revenue come from CSA versus restaurants, and then the farmers market? Is it all pretty even, or is it does it does yeah, it fluctuate I, in, depending on season? I try I try very hard to keep it as even as possible. Um, because I, I just think from a business standpoint, that's a smart thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's basically in thirds, more or less. And it fluctuates a little bit with the season, but it's, but it's pretty close to, uh, to being evenly divided. That's awesome. Now, something else I really want to talk to you about for very selfish reasons, because I'm also, <laughs> you know, on temporary things, is, is your cool walk-in cooler trailer. So <laughs> okay, yeah, so everybody. I can tell you how many ever since Curtis posted that video, I get so many. I've gotten so many emails about it, and I just feel bad because you know the spring is busy and like I can't email everybody back. Yeah, but uh, so but yeah, so <laughs> because I've really been struggling personally. Um, you know, when I was at uh, PV three, uh, one thing Dan Brisebois really just just hammered on was you know i think a lot of people lose focus you know with you know jm and curtis hit hard production stuff but you know if you don't have your walk-in cooler it doesn't matter how much food you're producing because it's just going to go bad and i remember yeah. last i remember last season man we were cutting the same day wayne rain or shine then we go to the farmer's market and most of our stuff was ruined by the end of the day and it just was like it wasn't bad because we didn't know what we didn't know. But now that like we have a season under our belt, now that we have, you know, I've, you know, paid to go to PV3, you know, I'm in Curtis's course, like I've paid for this education. It's like, I'm really do, I'm not really serious about this unless I get this walking cooler done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, uh, so I've been looking for different situations. My, um, my friend Scott, he built one and a lot of people have built one, but I saw your, and I was trying to figure it out. And then when I saw your video that, or the video Curtis did, I was like, man, a, a portable trailer would be perfect for me because I'm renting my house. And yeah, every, yeah, it's great for a lot of people. 
people, I think. Yes. Good idea. So, and I had and asked you via um, email before we, we started, because Coolbot does have instructions on how to do stuff, but it really looks like it's just other people's designs that they submitted to Coolbot. And you said, yeah. for the most part, you used your own design. Like, did you... So one thing, like, I'm kind of struggling with for the portable trailer is, do I get a trailer and then build up, or do I just buy an old trailer and modify it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, don't build something onto a trailer, because that's just too much work. It, it, it wouldn't be that much cheaper, and it's just too much extra work. Yeah. So I, I would just buy an enclosed trailer, like a cargo trailer. Yeah, so is that... Um, like for you, like how did you know? Like I'm, I'm gonna do this, or did it? Did we, like what, what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, so I knew that because because the farm is still, you know, this is only our second year, so, uh, so I'm still on on rental land. So, um, but when I was first, well, let me let me back up. So, so I understand what you're talking about with the whole like harvesting the same day because. <clears throat> that first year when I was doing quote unquote part time, right? Yeah. So when I was doing it part time, I was waking up at like three thirty in the morning on Saturday yeah. uh, and putting on a headlamp and going going out and harvesting with a headlamp. And I think my neighbors, because I, you know, I was like I had houses on either side of me, so I think they probably thought I was crazy. But I was polite enough not to like turn the floodlights on, you know, yeah. um, at like four a.m. or whatever. But so, so yeah, it was always like a race, like, oh, okay, I got to get like, you know, these turnips and like the salad mix and like, you know, spray these carrots down and whatever and like get to the market. And so and I was always like the last person to pull up at market and it was just sounds, stressful and, you know, that was us last year. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Also. Yeah. So no, it's okay. So, so I think a lot of people are in that position and I would, you know, I would say like, sure, like if you're doing it part time and just trying to see what you think about it and whatever. That's great. But like, if you want to run a farm, like you have to have a walk-in cooler. Like there's just no question. You can't, it's not like a, it's not like an, a, a maybe or something like you just have to have one. So, um, but with us being on rental land, the, the goal was to build as, as little permanent stuff as possible. So, uh, I don't remember where the idea came from, but I know I was looking at Coolbot's website and thinking about building a cooler, and and I think I was just thinking like, couldn't I just build one into like a box truck or something? And then when you go to their their cooler plans, they have links to a couple folks that have built mobile ones, and I was like, oh, a cargo trailer, that makes sense. So. So what I ended up doing was getting um, the cheapest, but like still relatively new. So like, you know, the frame and the tires and stuff were all good. And I wasn't going to have to replace things anytime soon. Um, so like the cheapest 6x10 trailer that I could with, with like the highest uh, or the tallest interior height uh, so that I wasn't like crouching when I was inside of it. Yeah. Um, I got that. And basically, just uh, <clears throat> pulled all of the interior, uh, you know, the plywood uh, walls and ceiling off, and did a couple inches of polyisocyanurate, which is just like a rigid uh, water water resistant foam insulation. Um, and I did a couple of inches of that all around, and then underneath uh, had it spray foamed. So like I actually took it to a place that does spray foaming, you know, for like houses, how, like basements and things like that in houses, and they came and spray foamed like the undercarriage uh, around the axles and stuff, 
um, which which meant that the interior height didn't change. Because uh, if you like pulled the floor up and put you know a bunch of insulation in the floor, then then it would make it a lot uh, short, uh, shorter inside. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so uh, and and most of your cold air is lost through the floor too. So we wanted to do a lot of insulation in the floor. Um, and then cut a hole in the back and put an air conditioner in and, uh, hooked up the cool bot. I mean, it really wasn't that it was like a couple day project. It wasn't that complicated to do. And I had, I had somebody help me with some of the building stuff cause I, I'm not like a master carpenter or anything. So it was helpful to have somebody who's like cut insulation and stuff, like somebody who had a little bit more, but, but having done it once now, I feel like, oh, I could do that again. No problem. It's, it's really not complicated at all. So like, if you've never done anything like that before, I would just say like budget twice as much time, but like you could do it without any help. So, and how much did you, how much did you budget for the, for the trailer? Uh, it was like, uh, you know, the, the trailer itself was a little less than $2,000 and then, all of the insulation and the fridge and the cool bot, the whole thing was, was less than 4,000, like all together. So, um, which, you know, you could buy a walk-in cooler with a compressor for a few thousand, but then you like can't move it anywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's also, there's the, there's the added benefit of, you know, because actually like, you know, Coolbot talks about this, like, Hey, if you're, if you have a problem, you can just get a new air conditioner. And actually, we we ended up our first air conditioner was faulty, or it turned out to be faulty, and it died after a couple months. And uh, all we had to do was go get a new air conditioner, you know, like the same day, rather than like calling a repair guy. You know, you just switch out the AC. So absolutely, and because uh, I think Curtis has one too, and he said uh, he said the 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 Coolbot runs at way lower power as well. Oh yeah, it's also much more energy efficient. I've actually seen some folks uh, set them up on solar, which is pretty crazy to think about. But uh, you know, because when you think of the energy draw of like a walk-in cooler, like it's it's crazy. It's a lot of a lot of energy. But our you know even in the height of summer, our walk-in is like less than a hundred bucks a month to run. So that's a pretty good deal. Um, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah great deal so and then uh now do you guys ever travel with it or is it just pretty stationary for the most part like can it run while you drive with it or is it only run when it's stationary so at our first year last year we we were doing a midweek market which i've since decided not to do for various reasons um but the midweek market was in the afternoon, you know, and early evening. So it was really hot because uh, it was like downtown in a parking lot. Um, so uh, so what we would do was, uh, you know, just have all the produce harvested the day before. And it's it's all really cold. It's all like 34 degrees, you know, in the trailer. And the entire inside of the trailer is 34 degrees. And we would just uh, unplug it and hitch it up to the truck and drive it to the market, and the stuff would stay really cold in there. You know, like we would we would keep CSA shares in there for people to come pick up, and they would be like cold to the touch three hours into market um, because the the cooler would hold the cold air so well. Um, and if you had a generator, you could you know plug it in and run it at a market or something if you wanted to. Uh, but but we've since sort of changed our um, changed our approach to that. So we don't we actually don't move it now. It's just stationary. That makes sense. Um, and and kind of stepping back because I feel like I've, I've picked your brain your brain quite a bit about your tra- your uh, walking cooler. 
How did you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go about getting land? Because that was actually a question I wanted to ask you beforehand. Okay. Um, because you got an acre, and I know it's it's rented land, and it is it, it's in the city. Um, is that correct? Is it no, it's not. It's not in the city, but it's like 15 minutes from the city, so it's it's really close to town. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a long story. I'll try to condense it as much as I can. So we ended up um, working with an organization uh, locally um, that attempts to link farmers with available land, um, and. Uh, they ended up hooking me up with a land trust that had a farm property, like a hundred acre property that had been donated to the land trust. And the land trust wanted to turn it into an incubator farm, if you're familiar with that idea. Um, so, so an incubator farm, meaning like a, a, a property where they would, you know, put in some infrastructure or whatever, and then and then you as a as a burgeoning, you know, a new farmer, you could come and rent this uh, property and have access to the stuff that's already there and it would be you know like a good way to start your business and then you can move on and buy your own land later um, there there are programs like that like and you know kind of all around the country um, but it would be the first of its kind in western North Carolina so so that sounded like a great idea um, to rent from these people because this was this uh, this this was the plan that they had um, uh, and then, and then it, it turned out to be um, uh, less than ideal situation for us for various reasons. Um, so we we ended up finding this land, and the land is like you know, for, r- rental land is never expensive um, if you're outside of a city, like whether it's twenty minutes or an hour or whatever. Like you can you can find like acreage for rent for pretty cheap. You know, like if you're renting for the way that farmers rent pasture and stuff like that. Um, so the the pricing is um, the pricing is totally affordable for us. But um, but when you're working with a land trust, you're you're not dealing with like a land owner. You're dealing with like an organization with a board of directors and a a director and co-executive director, and everything has to pass through multiple people, and so it, it's a very so it's dealing with uh, bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, and not everybody's on the same page about you know how they want things to go and what they envision for the property and whatever. So, so I've I've since uh, made a point of just cautioning people basically if they're going to work with um with a land trust for for land access uh to be to be careful about the situation that they're getting themselves into because it can be challenging so yeah absolutely so where do you see taking like where do you see the growth of your farm growing within like the next five years do you would you want to continue to uh rent land do you think you'd want to own your own land uh, yeah, so I'm I'm looking to buy right now. I've been because we've we've actually been told that we need to vacate by uh, the end of next year. Oh wow! So so when you consider the loan process uh, for for a land purchase combined with the timeline for and putting in infrastructure and stuff, um, we we need to to buy something before too long. So um, so I've been. 
Uh, I've been looking actively to buy land for the last maybe six months, um, which is uh, which is challenging here, as it is in in most markets where you have like a a large town or a, or a city or whatever that's that's a good a uh, good market for local for local food, food yeah. for a small farm. Yeah, frequently the land uh, the the land base there is. You know the acreage is expensive, so yeah. Um, lots so of, we're so we're certainly not. That's not a unique situation by any means for where us. Where there's but, a lot uh, of hipsters, you know, it's going to cost money. That's the thing. It's, yeah, per, base, base, in, a, in a nutshell, that's the simpler way of, of putting that. I suppose. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so so that that's the future of the farm is uh, I'm trying to buy uh, buy property for which which I will like at some point this year I'll I'll find something and put an offer in and and make that happen. So, um, but it feels really good to be so so I I was saying you know that I caution people about renting land blah 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 but but I think renting land to start out is a great idea. Uh, while you're figuring out what you want to do and what your scale should be and what you should be growing and whatever, because you know, just by definition, the infrastructure that you put up on rental land is going to be very um, temporary, and it's really great to always be reassessing your your situation and your setup and saying, okay, well, like this is okay for now, but you know, when I'm a landowner or like when I'm on the next property that I'm going to be on or whatever, like. I want to set things up this way or, or whatever. Um, so not, not committing, uh, early on to some sort of permanent or semi-permanent layout or infrastructure or whatever is, is a really great idea, I think, because you, you're bound to make a lot of mistakes, even just unwittingly, because you, you don't even realize that your production is going to change or whatever. Um, and it's great to figure all that out first and then make like a permanent commitment to a property and a, a particular setup and whatever else. So, And do you think, because like, right now all your, most of your infrastructure is um, temporary and movable, like, do you think you're going to upgrade your cooler or get more of a, a bigger high tunnel or anything like that when you purchase land is maybe not yeah. right away or is that just like a plan for the future? Yeah, definitely. So, and so the, that was kind of the other point I was going to make is it feels really good to be in a position where like maybe you've been in production for a couple or three years and you're ready to buy land and, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, like we're talking about a vegetable operation, but like any, any other sort of food production it's you know it's all the the same game i think um to be in this position where you say oh like there's a demand for what i'm doing now like i have name recognition and people want what i'm producing and whatever else um and to be in a position where you say okay like now i know that i do want to build a second larger walk-in cooler because on this day of the week, I'm producing this thing. And on that day of the week, I'm producing that other thing. And so it'll be good to have the extra space and to say, oh, okay, well, I know that I can sell, like in my case, I know that I can sell this much winter produce. And I have these, you know, I have like a grocery store account and like all these restaurant accounts. And these people will buy the same amount of stuff every week, no matter what, unlike a farmer's market or whatever. And and so there's, there's a, a demand and so it makes sense for me to build this infrastructure to meet the demand. So, um, but but at the same time, like one thing that I will say is, uh, 
Jean-Martin was here, uh, like he and I were both speaking at Mother Earth News, which is really funny, by the way, because a couple of years ago I was just going to see him speak at Mother Earth News, and now we're both speaking at Mother Earth News. But well, um, what's so cool that, though is like uh, JM, <laughs> like not to interrupt you, but when I when I sat down with JM and like recorded a second podcast with him, like the a big theme was you know be the hero in your own movie or be your own hero. And it's just like when you're your own hero and you go out and you, you, you put yourself out there and you bet on yourself, like you're going to find yourself in those situations. Right. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it totally does. That's true. I, I haven't, I haven't heard that second one. I need to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it as soon as we get off. The, <laughs> you don't have to, man, but yeah, it's, but, it's a good no, no, one. no, I'm going to, I'm going, that's, <laughs> that's the rest of that's, that's the rest of my night right there. And then I'm going to get up and harvest tomorrow. But, that's um, awesome. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, so he and I were talking about this when, cause he was in town a few weeks ago. It was at farm and we were, uh, we have all these caterpillar tunnels. So if anybody goes and watches Curtis's video from, I don't know, sometime in April, uh, with, it's on his YouTube channel. Um, but he's got some, some video of, of, of our field of, of winter caterpillar tunnels. And so, um, so Jam and I had had, just had dinner like two nights before that with Elliot Coleman and we were talking a lot about movable high tunnels, you know, cause that's Elliot's thing is, is the movable, the movable high tunnels on, on all the different, like all the, the best way that you can move a high tunnel, the cheapest, like simplest way to move it from one plot to another and whatever. Um, and we were looking at all the caterpillars and we were talking about that and JM was like, you know, one thing that I will say after doing this for over 10 years is, you know, you can, you can always spend more money. Like there's always going to be some better thing that you can buy, especially once you're a landowner, you can really just go all out. You can just, you can just, you can come up <laughs> with all sorts of things to spend money. Like I'm going to have like a bigger, nicer blank and it's going to be easier to use and whatever. But at some point you have to say like, okay, but you know, the people working on the farm are still supposed to be doing work. So like, at what point do we, do we kind of draw a line and say, all right, so that that's it. We're not going to buy this other thing. So he's actually been working on some really interesting caterpillar tunnel designs that, and he sent me some photos the other day. And so we're, I think we're going to up our uh, caterpillar tunnel game for next, for next winter. Um, and so I, so I think, uh, th so that, that's kind of a roundabout answer, but it's like, you know, on the one hand, it's great to expand your infrastructure and make your operation like bigger, uh, to, to an extent anyway, um, and make sure that things are running smoother and like that the work is easier on everyone and whatever. But at the same time, like sometimes there are simpler solutions and, and cheaper solutions. And I think, um, I think it's good to some degree to stay in the mindset of like what, you know, what, what's like a, what's an affordable way that I can, that I can make this thing happen. Um, yeah. So the, the frugal farmer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very seductive to just be like, Oh, like I'm just gonna, I'm going to, my, my whole operation is going to be so sleek and like, you know, yeah. I'm going to have all this new stuff that now I have the money to buy. And then it's like, you start spending all of the money that you're earning on, <laughs> on new infrastructure and stuff. And next thing you know, you're not really like clearing the same dollar, same dollar amount anymore. So, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because it, it does get to a point because, you know, last year we were doing the same thing, you know, seeding with our hands and, 
and everything. And we're like, you know, we'll let our, you know, our profits pay for the cedar and pay for the green harvester. But then it was just like, that's going to take a really long time. I'm just going to invest that money now um, because that's going to pay for itself faster, much like a, a nicer caterpillar tunnel is going to pay for itself. But then, you know, you get, it does really get to that point, just like you're saying, you know, the point of diminishing returns, like how much extra money is that really going to make you to get a bigger, fancier hoop house or, or high tunnel? Um, so I'm, I'm, I 100% agree with you. Like I, I, I haven't been able to find a good deal on a BCS. Like I didn't want to buy a brand new one because it's, you know, I'm trying to keep this budget this year to a certain amount. And uh, so I do have like this old craftsman tiller. But especially, you know, with JM's new work, we were already doing um, like the, the perma beds with the wood chips and the walkways and everything. And it's like, you know, it, it really would make sense to, to get the get the BCS with the attachments. It would be a lot easier and it would make a lot more sense. But um, but uh, anyways, I don't I don't know. I was just talking there, Matt. I just wanted to. I wanted to feel like I was a valid part of this conversation. I'm just teasing. Well, no, you totally are. But I, so I would just say that, like, you know, every operation is different in yeah. terms of what 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 are you know necessities versus things that are just going to make the work a little easier. But but I don't know. Like, I think like uh, I I I actually would encourage people to some degree to be comfortable with a debt load. Because especially once you once you form like a company and you're not you know a, a sole proprietor or a partnership or something anymore, you start thinking about like your finances in a different way, and and it's it's good to have like cash flow and to have to have money that's for you you know versus yeah. versus like a debt load that's associated with the farm, um, because anything could always happen right like you your farm could be successful on all sorts of levels and you could be making money and like some sort of life event could could happen and you could have to shut down or something and so so the idea that uh, that everything should come out of like cash that everything should come from the profits of the farm like um, I think that was that was a, a state of mind that I used to be in and that I'm not anymore um, I think it's I think it's good to like set you know, and this is all something that an accountant will figure out for you. But I think it's it's not not you, but I mean, like for no, somebody no. that's starting a yeah. small farm, that you know, I think it's good to to differentiate between like I'm setting this money aside for me because because I'm working hard and like I want to make sure that I'm secure versus like this is a debt load associated with the farm. So so if somebody like doesn't even know if they can sell any of their produce or where they're going to sell it, I wouldn't recommend like $10,000 in a BCS and implements. But if you but if you know what you're doing, then 10,000 for a BCS and implements is like really not a big deal because people spend several times that for a tractor and implements and, and it's a used tractor and implements and then they break and you know, then that's to be then a you have to like tractor repair mechanic along with, yeah, or, or, or just get somebody. Cause you know, I can put my BCS in like the back of a truck and just like take it somewhere <laughs> and get it fixed. And you know, you can't really like do that with your tractor. So absolutely. Um, that makes sense. Um, well, I tell you what, man. I think we can wrap up. We're almost at an hour here. Um, anything else you want to add for? Like, oh, here's something cool. Hey, if if uh-huh. if people listening to this podcast want to follow your work 
and check out okay. the cool stuff you're doing. What's a great uh-huh. way for them to do that? Okay, so I'm I'm uh, talking to uh, well, I'll say a couple things. One is that I'm talking to uh, Chelsea Green about writing a book right now. So um, you can keep an eye out for that. The book is tentatively going to be called Four Season Market Gardening. Um, so you can go to that URL, fourseasonmarketgardening.com, uh, and there is a uh, mailing list sign up. Um, and it's a, the, the mailing list is like a four growers mailing list. So I send out emails with info about stuff that's happening on the farm and things that I'm working on. Um, so, so there's that, like if you're really, if you're really serious and you want to like read, you know, an email about caterpillar tunnel design or something, um, which maybe a lot of people listening to the podcast are in that group. Um, but you can also, uh, follow us on, uh, Instagram. Uh, it's a uh, second spring market garden on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, and, uh, and then the website for the, for the farm is secondspringfarm.com. Okay. So, um, because secondspringmarketgarden.com is, is a bit long for most people. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, is that, is that good? Is that a good that's, collection? That's good. No, that's really good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's it. So, um, but yeah, so everybody go to that stuff. I'm definitely going to subscribe, man. Um, that's okay, awesome great. to hear that you're writing a book that that's the same, now, are those? Is that the same person that that got uh, publisher as like Curtis and JM? Uh, so JM and Curtis are with New Society Publishers, okay. up, but uh, but they're up in Canada. Um, okay. And uh, Chelsea Chelsea Green does uh, uh, all of Elliot Coleman's books, um, okay. amongst other things. So I uh, and uh, Ben, do you know Ben Hartman? Uh, the yeah. uh, the Lean Farm. Yeah, I'm like, reading I, the, okay, the so Lean he's, Farm now. That's how I knew okay, that name. So, so he's through. He's uh, he's through Chelsea Green. Yeah, um, they're a great publisher. They uh, if if anybody, I mean, if you're just if you're interested in in uh, in books about small farming, pretty much their whole catalog is 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 really solid. They're they're an impressive publisher, and I mean, the fact that they have all of Elliot's books is you know that speaks speaks volumes about them. But um, but yeah, if you're reading the Lean Farm, that's that's like a whole other conversation we could have. That's a uh, that's a great book. <laughs> Yeah, I really like that book a I lot. Was, I was going to ask you, and I guess we could do it real quick. Um, how, did, now, sure. did that change? Did that kind of influence the way you were doing things real quick? Like, uh, oh, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, what it did was validate what I felt like was my own craziness, um, which was great. So, <laughs> so basically, <laughs> like, okay, yeah. So, like, you read his book, and you're like, oh, I, I wanted to do that, but I thought, like, no, that's crazy. I shouldn't do that. That's That's way too OCD of me to to like organize my wash station that way or whatever. Um, but, but when you read, when you read his book, uh, the way that he lays things out, like it's, you know, the, the, spe- I don't think the specifics of the book are necessarily that important. Like the, the Japanese terminology and stuff like, I mean, it's interesting, but, but like for me, what I really got from it was the importance of creating spaces that are pleasant to work in yeah, and create like, like pleasant and productive workflow for all of the people working in them, not just you, you know? So like, just because you know where everything is and how everything should go, doesn't mean that it's going to be obvious to somebody working on your farm. Um, 
and creating like standard like standard operating procedures like SOPs for everybody on the farm so that everybody knows how everything needs to go and then it's easy to to like trace back like what went wrong if something goes wrong because everybody's doing stuff the same way um so there there's a lot of stuff in that book that you know once you read it you're kind of like oh like that yeah that makes sense that's obvious but but again it's like the same thing with a lot of people start farming and then they don't treat the farm like a small business, you know? Well, and also too, so. it, yeah, I agree with that, but it's also, you don't, I mean, I think you, you hit it right nail on the head, but I think it's easy, it's easy to get distracted by other things as well, <laughs> like production. Yeah. Oh everything. yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It's yeah. That's, that's, that's the problem really is there's just too, like when you're running a diversified farm, there's too, too many things going on all the time. So yeah, um, no, I, I know just from le- reading the lean farm, um, Scott Hebert as well. Like Scott actually built this. He's building this cool cart, and he put it in uh, JM's Facebook group. You know, Market Gardener. Yeah, Success. yeah, I saw that. I saw that the other day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then, like all these people shared his cart. And now it's like just yeah. blown up. It's and like, he's there's like he, five thousand views on this thirty second yeah. video of his. Like, well, this is my tool cart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Five thousand views on YouTube. And he said, uh, he said it was just <laughs> funny. Like he was just like, man, it, all it was is it was the last thing that I couldn't get rid of. Like he was cleaning out his old workshop and he was like, well, I can't load this in the truck. So, oh, you know what? I could turn this into a tool cart. And I guess it's a, it was originally like a cart to uh, for canoes. So like a, or like a canoe cart. So, um, and I think too, and it kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier in the podcast is, you know, being, looking, looking at ways to kind of be creative um, in a different light as well. Um, because you could go and maybe spend money on on some tool cart, or you can just repurpose something you already have and make yourself more lean. So, right. um, yeah. But uh, well, anyways, Matt. Yeah, definitely would uh, hopefully have you on again once you uh, once your book comes out, and we can and I can help pr- promote it, and then maybe as I become sounds good as I become more of a, a seasoned farmer myself. Um, as uh, pick your brain a little bit more, but anyways, I appreciate yeah. the the time that you gave me, and I, and I think everybody else did too. And uh, so, and hopefully, we gave enough explanation on the podcast so people don't have to email you about your uh, walk-in cooler. <laughs> oh, no. no, no, I don't mean to. I don't mean to say because actually, I have a couple friends in, in the Young Farmers Coalition that have emailed me. So I don't mean to like. Oh, I don't mean to sound season. like I don't want people to email me. I just like. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's hard. It's hard this time well, of year. But, um, I mean, yeah, but yeah really I think is. I just answered all the questions at once. Maybe, so. <laughs> so awesome. Well, thank you so much again, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you again soon. With my man, Stud Doogie Love. Dropping 2000. Dig the way this go down. Check it. I hit a flow off, dipped in low, sit back and sit more as I count my dough. Grand Pooba Maxwell, Doogie, coming with the New York. We keep it real like jail when we might talk. Honey's no cuz when I'm in a set, Grand Pooba is the one who makes they stink box wet. So let me tell you something, lady, when your float is flowed, then it's all cream and baby. I made this 
fun for the brothers in the party To find a hearty and dance body to body Step one, first you grab honey by the waist Step two, then you move at a ghetto pace Step three, then you look a dead in the face Step four, now it's time to lead this place Hold up, be careful of the cheesers The teasers, the one who wants the money in the visas I'ma tell honey straight off the back But please don't even go there with that Dig it, this one's designed to make the spine in your back whine Grand Poob, a nice setup for you every time And you say New York City And you, and you say New York City And you say New York City And you say Could it be I stayed away too long MCs be wishing I was gone Because they wanna be where I are But you can't get that far So stop wishing on the star It's only one grand P So honey, do what you did on the night you creep with me It's no doubt I come real with that The butter trap The one that makes honeys hit the bed mat I'm energetic, poetic, athletic With good credit So just move like I'm Simon and I said it You see my flow is just a step ahead I'm still wicked in the bed Because I'm downright nasty like Newlyweds, so back up and let me breathe. Cause when it comes to getting down, I'm getting looser than a crack. It's hair weave, and I bet your mind got leave. While you never find a style like this if you're searching me your mouth. So, once you let poo by a nice y'all party, I hit a flow like Al wrote See, I've been doing this for years. I'm leaving MCs in tears, tears, dig it. Cause they falling just like the rain. Grand poop is too much for the brain. Now go diggers who try to get it. I left them backwards. They thought they fought it when they shit it. Cause poo buys everything. And everything is poo. Cause I hit them with a one. And then with a two. Yeah, cause that's just how Grand Poo and Stud Doogie do. You didn't know I was the bomb, baby. Somebody should have told you. Somebody should have told you. Yeah. Without 